every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This is a special two-part episode featuring the uncuttable budget items from every CMO and marketing leader who's appeared on Demand Gen Visionaries this year. We want to thank you all for joining us on this journey, and we wish you a happy, healthy, and successful 2021. Before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this special episode of Demand Gen Visionaries with your host, Ian Faison. Hey, this is Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios and your host of Demand Gen Visionaries. To get everyone ready for 2021, and frankly, to kick 2020 down the drain, we wanted to create a special episode. It's the holiday season, and this is our special gift to you, our amazing listeners. While this will mostly be a December to not remember, the next two episodes serve as sort of a guide for your 2021 marketing planning. We will answer the question in the next two episodes, what are your peers, fellow CMOs, and marketing leaders doing in 2021? Everyone is worried about 2021 budgets. Everyone wants to know what their peers are doing. How are you structuring? How are you spending? And what are those uncuttable budget items? So we compiled the list of uncuttable budget items from our 24 CMO guests. These two episodes allow you to compare notes and plan for next year. We also created a companion article that you can find in the show notes. That way you can bookmark it and listen again in January and beyond as you continue to refine how you're spending your money. In these two episodes, you'll hear from the CMOs themselves. Previous guests like Julie Legal from Slack, Sarah Varney from Tulio, Ryan Bonici from G2, Chandar from Koopa, and many more. But before we get to the CMOs, I wanted to talk to you about three areas that we have seen a lot of uncuttable investments, and that is content, events, and websites and personalization. We'll let the CMOs share more details about how they're doing it, but the overall trend is quality over quantity. People are making meaningful content, creating more engaging events, and personalizing their websites to be selling machines. I would say that they're creating remarkable experiences with content and events, and then capturing the value in real time when those people come to the website with personalized assets and conversations in real time. Now, let's break down these three areas a bit further. Number one, content. People are building highly relevant content to break through the noise. Content is the most frequently mentioned area of investment among the CMOs we speak with. Broad, generic, market awareness motions aren't as effective as capturing the attention of today's time-starved B2B buyers. While targeting strategies vary, some CMOs adopt an industry vertical approach, while others focus exclusively on company revenue and size. Everyone agrees that producing content tailored to their ideal customer profile helps boost relevance and increase sales velocity. Not only are CMOs making a big push to produce curated content, but they're also investing in intelligent ways to distribute the content. 
SEO still remains a top-mentioned area of focus, but LinkedIn is becoming a popular content channel as well. Many CMOs are also thinking strategically about how this content aligns with their account-based engagement motions. Anecdotally, for us at Caspian Studios, we have seen these investments firsthand. We've created over 10 B2B podcasts this year in partnership with amazing companies like Snowflake, Zoom, Oracle, and many more. Companies want engaging content that gets people away from the meeting fatigues and webinars, and podcasts are a great way to help people learn off-screen while they're working out or doing chores or things like that. Which brings us to number two, events. Producing events is still a big-budget item. They just look completely different. We have no idea what the future is going to hold for events. But events have historically been a major demand gen engine for the CMOs we speak with. Naturally, life in the midst of a pandemic has drastically changed this, but the events have far from grinded to a halt. Many CMOs have quickly pivoted to webinars as a scaled events approach. And though they frequently echo that these have not proven productive for the deeper relationship building and networking benefits of traditional in-person events. To help achieve this, some CMOs mention early success with smaller, more intimate virtual events. These generally involve an immersive icebreaker type experience, such as a wine tasting or cooking class, and then include thought leadership discussions. We have seen folks have success with the big, huge event, but often that comes with a ton of vanity metrics and top-level engagement, which is good in a lot of ways. But in order to develop deeper relationships, we're seeing people leave sales out of the room for a little bit to have the more emotional conversations moderated by a third party instead of that agenda-driven conversation led by sales. At the end of the day, once you create all that value, hopefully they're going to your website either the next day or in a few days or a week later and hitting the website to learn more about your products, which is where number three moves in, the website and personalization. We're seeing advancing website strategies to deliver personalized real-time engagement. CMOs universally agree that their website is the front door in the buyer experience, and now more than ever that is the case. The window of opportunity to capture a prospect's attention is getting smaller and smaller, yet buyers have much higher expectations for receiving that personalized experience. While producing content that's highly relevant to high-value prospects is a top priority for CMOs, they're also finding creative ways to create personalized experiences within the website. Many CMOs have launched conversational marketing strategies, such as live chat and chatbots, to deliver one-to-one buyer experiences that quickly engage them while their interest is piqued. Some CMOs are even looking to intent and signal tracking capabilities to surface and engage with active buyers, particularly those who choose to remain anonymous deep into their buying journey we expect to see a lot of advancement in this area over the next year. Lastly, I have a little bit of homework for you as you listen to these uncuttable budget items. What was the most memorable or remarkable thing that you saw this year? For me personally, the best experience that I had was from a digital event that was put on by the team at Procore. They had all these thoughtful little gifts that they would send you throughout the few days of the events. One of the gifts was a little letter board that I use to write notes to my wife with now. It's fun and silly and is something that I can kind of do for her every day on this little silly letter board. It lives in our house now and it led to the conversation 
hey, who's Procore? To me, that just felt like a fun, organic, and authentic way to create a conversation in somebody's household. And in the household of ABM, in the Faison household, they did a great job. If you have anything that you saw, you can send them to us at team at caspianstudios.com. We'll feature them in the show, or you can shoot me a note anytime on Twitter at Ian Faison. And now, on to the uncuttable budget items. Scott Holden, CMO of ThoughtSpot. I would say right now, our number one digital channel is LinkedIn. And the reason why is because of the account-based targeting. It's the best advertising platform we found for going after big businesses where you can target by company size and by title. And so given what we're trying to do, that is by far our most efficient channel. It's gotten a lot more expensive over the years. When we first started, I was like, this is too good to be true. They've figured out they're sitting on a pretty good asset and they've monetized it appropriately. So the, the ROI isn't as great as it was a few years ago, but it's still just so hyper-targeted and probably the number one thing from a digital perspective. For us, it's been our number one thing. Facebook actually, right now in the COVID era, recording this in June of 2020, people are at home, I think, on social media a bit more. And so we've seen Facebook and Instagram start to kick a little hotter than they had in the past. But I don't have the targeting ability that I have with LinkedIn. And so I'd say the hit rate is probably 20% of what LinkedIn is, but the cost per lead is a lot lower. And so it ends up being still a very effective channel for us. There's just a lot of noise in it. COVID aside, in the enterprise, like B2B marketing, events rule. I mean, events are killer. And people, people are people. We crave connection. And it's been a huge blow for marketers not to have that. I mean, 40% of my pipeline comes from physical events. So it's been hats off to all the marketers out there working overtime during this pandemic because we've all had to take in the B2B space what has been a tried and true source of pipeline and flip it into digital. And so just a huge transition from, you know, a very tried and true playbook of the physical event format to what does our digital menu of events look like? And so we've rolled out a whole new, you know, we got like basically five core meals on the digital event menu, the virtual event menu, if you will. And um, it's been really exciting to see the team pivot and to actually see some bright spots from that. It turns out that busy execs are hard to pin down outside of a pandemic and get them to come to your event when everybody's sitting at home there's a little bit more flexibility to, you know, to sit through a 30 or 45 minute webinar. And so we found that we've been able to get access to some of these senior people that we work with. Typically at ThoughtSpot, we sell to the chief data officer and the CIO, but we also tend to have, you know, the EVPs and the SVPs of business units, whether that's sales or marketing operations, et cetera, be a part of the buying process. And so those folks are typically hard to get. And we found that now more than ever, we've had great ways to engage with them We've been doing, you know, whether it's a, you know, a wine event in the evening or breakfast events, you know, we break bread virtually, if you will. And, you know, you, you make them more smaller format, you get a dozen people together where they feel like they can share best practices. It's a great way to, to connect with people still. I mean, right now, the only thing I have in my brain is all the webinars we're doing have really just stepped up to fill the void from the physical events. And so that's probably the number three on my list right now. Sarah Varney, CMO of Twilio. 
weird to say this right now, but field marketing is a line that I would kind of lay on the tracks for, for sure. We've had to really reimagine what field marketing looks like in this world. I think people have gotten, I think everyone's going to come out of COVID a much stronger marketer because we've just been forced to think about new ways to engage people, especially in the higher segments where those dinners and those kind of networking opportunities and CIO councils and, you know, C-level networking opportunities are really critical. We've had to get really creative about how reimagine that playing field. But I just think that there's no better substitute for driving a large amount of pipeline, especially in the upper upper segments. I think another one is your investment in organic content. And it's odd because people don't normally list that out. When you say like, what are things that you can't cut budget wise? You know, people go to like their, you know, Google ad spend and that might be my third. So I don't want to totally uh, discredit Google. But I don't know that people always include organic as a a budget line item, but that's definitely a resource. You you need to fund the team. You need to fund the writers. You need to be committed to constantly looking at how you're performing from an SEO perspective. And, you know, we've seen in the wake of COVID, I think we've seen some work that the investment that we've made over the last couple of years really pay off as people have started to search for things that might have been in the the longer tail of our SEO criteria, but there are things that are hyper-relevant right now. And so that investment in and, you know, making sure that we've got coverage for a broad surface area of use cases is, is really paying off and something that I want to continue to invest in. And then I think the third is, you know, I think there are some tried and true paid channels. I think that there are, although I've been you know, talking a lot about the long game, making sure that you've got the right awareness play for the long haul, there are very easy, low-hanging fruit. Google SEM is always kind of a go-to if you just need to, if you get, uh, you know, an end-of-quarter influx of money, you know, that's an easy place to go and make sure that you're going to have a guaranteed amount of SQLs. Nate Skinner, Global Marketing Leader for CX at Oracle. Well, I mean, the first one I think for, especially for any technology company would recognize, it's the website. That is the front door to the house. That's the world's perception of us. If we did no campaigns, if we ran no ads, it's the website. And you cannot cut the website. In fact, if anything, you have to invest in it. You have to invest in technologies like qualified.com that allow you to chat with customers. Like you have to make the website as simple and approachable and concise as possible because people have such limited attention spans. But the additional side of that right now is everyone is sitting at their home on their computers searching the internet. So if you're not doing your best to make sure your website attracts them when they find you, you are losing right now. So that's number one, don't mess with the web. If anything, invest in, double down on the website. The second is in quality of people. This is a tough environment generally, not to mention where we are right now with COVID. The number of people who are out there that have the skills and experiences to do all the things you need to do to drive the next generation of growth out the other end of this environment, there's not that many. I mean, like really, really good, strong execution engine of human beings is something we don't want to cut. We have to look at it and think, where do we get the most from this? How can we drive the next generation of growth? And the third part of this answer, which is a long-winded one, unfortunately, that both of those things work in combination to drive value to the selling team. We talk about our customer proposition, right? We think about the customer and work backwards when it comes to good marketing. I think that's the way I approach it is what is the problem we're solving for customers? Let's talk about it that way so that we use their language to reach them with our solution. And when we do that well, it drives new demand for the sellers. And if we're doing that, then the leads they're getting are of high quality and not a bunch of wasted time. There's nothing salespeople like to complain about more than either one of two things, a lot of really bad leads or not enough 
good leads. They work hand in hand. If you're talking about the customer's experience and putting the solution in front of them, then you're by definition likely driving very qualified leads to your sellers. And anything that's doing that, you can't cut. Corinne Sklar, CMO of IBM IX and worldwide marketing leader of customer experience for IBM. I would focus on three areas and we can dive deeper into those. Number one, it's not necessarily something you pay for with dollars. You do in regards to headcount, but you definitely pay for it in resource and time. And number one, that is around executive alignment and sales enablement. In B2B demand gen marketing, we are selling through a channel. And sometimes you're selling through multiple channels. But in particular, in B2B, you are selling through a channel and that channel is your salespeople. And ultimately, for me, the one area I would never cut is the focus and intense resource amount that it takes to really executive align and work with salespeople in the field around your programs. Now, executive alignment is a particular one that I'm very, I take very seriously. And what that means is number one, it really is at the culture of the company, understanding the role that marketing plays as an integral part of the entire demand funnel. So when we look at everything from awareness to close, marketing has a role to play in that funnel. And we've been talking about that for years, but really understanding that it is a partnership and having executives and CEOs in particular that really understand the need to provide autonomy and support at the highest level of the CMO into the field, even at that you know, VP of sales or CRO level is really important that we need to be thinking the company needs to be thought of as a marketing and sales driven organization, not just a sales driven organization. Once you have that cover, then it comes down to how do you really align with sales around demand gen and around plays? And I spent a lot of my time talking about this idea that I want my sellers to go sell whatever they can sell. At the end of the day, you own your account, you sell what you can sell. But here are three plays that our organization, our executive business, we feel that we must drive into the organization and we need your help to do that. So it's not about trying to do everything in marketing, but it's about focus and it's about driving that focus. And there's a lot of science, I believe, and art to really designing your sales plays and your programs around things that are generating revenue today. So what are we doing to put gas and dollars and demand gen budget on things that our sellers are selling today that actually drive revenue and pipeline that we'll see within quarter? But I also am a very strong believer, and I have a lot of stories about the need, especially in marketing, to be laying foundation for future offerings, products, or services that we must begin to market sooner than later if we want our sellers and we want to build new revenue streams within, let's say, two to three years. So it's important that you balance and that you have executive leadership alignment to balance that because if you're only selling and marketing into today, you're not really building that next wave of pipeline and revenue stream that's going to come as your business has to evolve and react to new customer demand. So a little bit of a a long way to say, number one thing I would not cut is really that focus on, you know, picking those programs and, and aligning and having executive sponsorship 
around those campaigns and plays that you're running in the field. That's number one. And where we are with COVID is events. You can hear from tons of marketers, events. Is it old school? You know, Should we be spending this much of, on events? And I would say 100% yes. Our sellers are looking for any opportunity to build intimacy with their customers. And if we can generate a face-to-face or even now a virtual engagement through different types of virtual events, that shows a lot more commitment than somebody just downloading a piece of content or clicking on an ad. And so I still am a very strong believer in the role that events play. And I would never take events budget out of my programming. And instead, we are getting even more creative during COVID around the types of events that our sellers need because they're not able to go you know, jump on site with a customer today. The third one I would say is absolutely that breakout content. I'm a big believer in content marketing. Um, I would say I was very early on and really experimenting with personalized ABM. But when it comes to content marketing, I'm also a big believer in you've got to do content that doesn't check the box, that doesn't necessarily, the term I always use is me too marketing. You see somebody else doing something in content and so you're like, oh, that sounds like great. I'll just you know repurpose that for our own brand. No, content marketing has to stand out. It either has to be super provocative. It has to be super detailed in regards to a problem that somebody we know needs to be solved and it really needs to stand out. And so for me, in the highest levels, it's sales enablement, events, and really strong content marketing all aligned through the channel of our sales. Ryan Bonici, CMO of G2. One of my first ones is like content, essentially, is the content team, right? The team that drives traffic to the site, which then obviously you want to convert that traffic into leads and then convert those leads into pipeline for the sales team. Traffic's an interesting one because I just like fully believe at my core that like inbound marketing and attracting someone to you and giving them value is just a, a better way of doing business. It's a much more longer term way of doing business. It creates a moat around you that nothing, that the paid can never do. On the flip side, though, the great thing about content is that it's an asset that you own over time, right? So as you create content, that content as it starts to rank, it doesn't disappear whether you have writers or not. So I would say that that's like one of those flexible budgets in that like if our whole content team went on vacation for a month or even three months, our traffic probably wouldn't change all that much because of the fact that, you know, we've already created a lot of that content and it takes a while for new content to help impact and drive traffic. So that's a bit of like a catch 22, I guess, ultimately in that first bucket for me is that like, that's such an important thing. And I always like really build the business case for why we need that team. But in the same token, I think it could all, it's also one of those like budgets that if in a worst case scenario, you could cut it because if it's already done what it needed to do and grew, grew traffic, which then drives leads, you could pull it back a little bit for a period of time if you had to. I wouldn't recommend doing that, obviously, but if you had to, you could. Um, So that'd be the first one. I think the second one for me of like my non-negotiable things is like I really love leaning into sort of growth marketing and looking at how do we as a marketing team drive smart behavioral triggers within our product or within our website. 
So what that means is, you know, you see so many sites, right? Like SaaS companies, DSC companies, right? That'll have a page where you can cancel your subscription. And if you do try and cancel it, there's actually software companies now that literally specialize in like how to minimize the cancellation by getting you to pause or by getting you to lower your rate to a certain, you know, a smaller package or by giving you a promo code to keep you on for longer. That's like obviously a business in its own right. What I think the biggest opportunity there outside of doing that, which I never see anyone doing that we do is if someone goes to like a cancellation page on G2 and they don't actually cancel, you'd be surprised. Like you should always look at the cookie, the users that are going to that page because typically like someone will go to that page before they will cancel. And if they're then comparing you to other competitors, like that's a, just a bit of an indicator to me that, oh, like they must not be getting something out of the platform. So A, that should trigger an email to the account manager or the relationship manager on that account, letting them know that someone in their account was looking at this page and maybe they need to get more entrenched in that account and learn what's going on more quickly. But yeah, that's just one example. I mean, we do behavioral kind of notifications and emails, not just internally, but externally. So if you're a prospective customer of G2, so we can see from, we have a huge tech stack. So we're using tools like Caliber Mind, Metadata, gosh, Zoom Info, and I'm having a mental blank now. We literally use about a dozen other tools for like prospecting and for cooking and for understanding who our buyers are to fill forms progressively for us and everything. And if we can see that you match our ideal customer profile and you're viewing maybe a case study or you're viewing our pricing page or something like that, even if you haven't filled out a form, you've most likely you know, inquired about software on our site at some point in time. So we've most likely cookied you and we know who you are, whether you've logged in via LinkedIn or Google or, or something. And so that'll trigger an automated email from the account manager that will own them. So we will like really quickly say, okay, like this person is from a software company of this size based on all of this behavioral data that we just like pulled in from data or Zoom info or something else in the back end, CRM. So then we will shoot off a triggered email to them or even a push notification on the website that'll say, hey, Ian, notice that you were checking out, you know, some case studies about G2's buyer intent data. Click here to schedule some time to learn more about it. And so those are firing off in the background for our sales reps, for our RMs, so that then they're getting meetings booked on their calendar automatically for them with regards to these sort of behavioral intent signals that these folks are doing on our site. And I think that's just like another group of things that I think most marketing teams don't do a great job of doing. And they're so easy to do and so quick to get up and running those kinds of things. And they're really more about volume. Sorry, they're more about quality. So it's like lower volume, higher quality, as opposed to like high volume, low quality. So, you know, we might only book 10 meetings a week through those kinds of like tactics, but they're really high quality meetings that are being booked for sales. So that's probably like my second bucket. Yeah, number three, I'm not so sure about what that would be. I would say probably the other, like the function marketing, and I probably should have said, said this first actually is really marketing analytics and marketing ops, because I think that's such an underrated and undervalued team. And I think I've learned from my mistakes actually with that and not prioritizing that. Sometimes I think when you jump in and to take over a marketing team or to lead something, from my own experience, I feel like such a drive to like drive results really quickly that in the past I've over-indexed on running like new growth campaigns and just getting new things out there to prove to the sales team, to prove to my boss, the CEO, that I was the right hire. And I think, and that's been great, but in the same time, it's probably led me then 
to get a few months down the path where I'm like, oh shit, like I need to build out a more rigorous marketing ops kind of function, a more rigorous marketing analytics function so that I can really inform sales on what I'm seeing happening in the pipeline. And I think that helps you be a really strategic partner to sales because I think the reality is most sales leaders aren't like number pushers. They're not really good at getting into the weeds of numbers. And that's changing for sure over time. But that old school sales leader like the car salesman i think like those folks aren't like data people (laughs) Um, they're relational sales reps and so if you're working with one of those people i think it's your job as a marketing leader or as a vp of demand gen to really be kind of like that data-driven partner for that other person to really help them understand what's going on in their pipeline because you know the amount of pressure on a cro or a vp of sales is huge and you know, they're so focused on the activity of their team that sometimes that can pull them away from analytics at times, I, I think. Mike Marcellin, CMO of Juniper Networks. So just at a high level first, you know, I've talked a lot about technology and, you know, making sure that whether it's a chatbot on the website, whether it's our MarTech stack all up, you know, that and data science were the two big investments I made right out of the gate five years ago when I started as CMO here, because I felt like that was how we were going to get a competitive advantage. In fact, many of our competitors are much larger and will can outspend us from a marketing perspective. And for that matter, from a sales perspective, they'll have more feet on the street. So we have to be super smart and super targeted and effectively outsmart them because we can't outspend them. And so, you know, that technology stack and the rigor we put around vetting technology, that's one area I would say is uncuttable. The hand in hand thing, as I mentioned, is data. You know, we don't have a huge data science team, but we've got a handful of folks who are dedicated and are, and are experts, and they are a huge resource to our organization. And then probably the third area, kind of, again, at a macro level, would just be content. And that comes in many shapes and sizes, as, as we all know, but making sure that we've got the right expertise at all stages of the funnel to create high-quality content. So those are the broad brush areas, I'd say, are absolutely invest areas. Um, and then maybe from a tactics perspective, you know, I would say we have actually had tremendous success over the past three or four months with virtual events. We pivoted extremely fast. And, and by the way, we were doing webinars and things like that before, but I'm talking about big events that we previously would have done in person that we've now pivoted virtual. And we've seen a lot of success with that. And of course, nowadays, we couldn't cut that up if we wanted to because it's one of our primary mechanisms. But I would actually see going forward even post-COVID, whatever that looks like, doubling down in that area because we've seen a lot of success. And then the other tactic I would just say back to the content as a broad brush is, you know, just making sure, you know, it's so easy to fall into the trap of creating marketing blah, blah, you know, where you're saying things that are just generalizations or things that your competitors could equally say. Again, because we're the primary way that this company gets engaged with new opportunities, it's got to cut through the clutter that's out there. You you said it. I mean, people are so bombarded nowadays with emails and invitations to webinars, and they're trying to do their day job and are not in the mode of dealing with a lot of marketing pitches. So what you say has to be timely, relevant, cut through the clutter, and just ideally be something that is either quantifiable or just, you know, real value that you can deliver to their business. And so creating that content, yeah, there's the actual writing of it, But there's also what sits behind that, which is making sure you're looking at the value that you're bringing to your customers in a quantifiable way. And we've got a small team that does business modeling. They'll do it alongside with customers, actually, throughout the the buying phase. But then that serves as a great source of that data after the fact. So we can say, we saved company X 
you know, 40% by implementing this. And this is how it, how, how that savings was actually realized and whether or not we could name company X, it's still valuable. Tracy Eiler, CMO of Inside View Technologies. One of them is all things to do with the website. It's the front door to the company. And especially now in COVID, it's the only way that you can guarantee interactivity with your audience. So all things related to the website, a derivative of that would be having a really great search engine optimization strategy. You know, you can cut your digital ad campaign, for example, if you need to, but you really need to make sure that you're appearing in relevant searches and so on. Um, Second one, I think I would say is really our account-based tactics, which are very much orchestration of email, phone calls, social touch, and ads all together, and orchestration between marketing, SDRs, and sales, and CX for that matter, when it comes to existing accounts. So maybe I'm cheating a little here, Ian, with packing too many subtopics in, but... I was just going to say you're cheating for number two. And, and same thing for number one, honestly, too, because the website, there are so many elements to a website, but it is your front door. I think those would be my two. I, I don't know that I can pick a third that would rank as highly. If we were out of quarantine and, and everyone was sort of back to normal, I'd say field events would probably be my third and figuring out a virtual way to replace that so you can really get that human-to-human interaction would probably be my third if I had to pick. Latney Conant, CMO of Six Sense. So the first thing I would say is something called the value card. And this is a term we kind of made up, we created. But when I talk about the you know, no forms, no spam, no cold calls formula. It's not that we're not sending emails ever. And it's not that we're not calling. I'm not banning people from using a phone. I'm not taking their cell phones. But what it is saying is our emails and calls are all geared toward to add value based on a ton of insights and based on accounts that we know are in market. And so how does that inform our playbook? Well, something that we do is this value card. So basically what happens is when an account is in market, a BDR gets notified that the account is in market, and then they can see the top keywords that the account is researching. And so then what marketing does is we take all of the top keywords on a quarterly basis and we outline what that keyword means for each of our key personas. So it's best if I walk you through an example. So let's say this quarter we look and we see, oh my gosh, in our ideal customer profile, predictive analytics is right now one of our top keywords. We need to create a value card. So we create a value card. The value card is for predictive analytics. If you are the head of sales researching predictive analytics, that means, Ian, that you are interested in probably things like forecasting accuracy, deal acceleration. If you are the head of demand gen researching predictive analytics, you probably care about lead scoring or lead quality. So we essentially map this keyword to each persona so that when I'm a BDR and I see that you're in market and I see the research you're doing and I see it's predictive analytics and I see that you're demand gen, I'm going to have a different conversation and I'm going to marry up different content than if you're in sales. So these value cards are key to ensuring that right from the start of our outreach, we are adding value to the persona we're outreaching to. So that is a huge part of our playbook. The second part of our playbook is something called a 6QA. So I don't track MQLs. 
I don't care, never have. So we'd have no MQLs and, and don't worry about them. What we're looking for is to understand the sweet spot in a buying journey when enough people on the buying team are engaged, meaning they're consuming content and the account has gone from learning to, we think, open to engagement. So how do we determine that? Well, we want to look again at the dark funnel data. So we want to look at anonymous data and known data. And we want to look at four kind of key scores. We want to look at, is this even a good fit account for us? Is this in our ICP? So we have a model that is constantly updating, looking for accounts that meet our ICP criteria and look like other accounts that we have won. So it's always updating and changing in real time. That's first. Second is a model that looks at who is typically on a buying team for closed deals for us. And how is that buying team? Are these the right personas engaged? Third is the level of engagement and the types of activity they're doing. Are they on our pricing page or are they on a competitor website? And then fourth is kind of this timing model that tells us where they are in their journey. And that all that comes together to give something, a score called a six QA, which is a six cents qualified account. And that triggers a lot of our outreach and process. The value card and the six QA are super, super critical to our playbook. And then the, the third thing that's critical to our playbook is how we connect up channels, be it our chat bot, be it our content hub to a dynamic segment that's always changing to make sure that our experiences across the board. So wherever you go, we can kind of follow you and you as an account and make sure we're delivering a personalized experience. Tom Buda, a multi-time tech CMO, most recently of SignalFX. You know, search, right? We just, we had to, we had to spend the money to ensure that we were showing up first on the first page. And when we understood what the key triggers were, whether they were competitive displacement or replacement opportunities or the like, we had to spend the money smartly, but we had to spend the money to show up when somebody might be searching for competitor A. And we knew that there was a long history of replacing you know, those accounts over time, those, their installation. So we would need to, we would want to spend against that searches for say their business. So, so that, that's, that's one on, I mean, really uncuttable again, as long as you have the confidence that it's being really tightly managed and you're not, you're, you're not showing up on every single browser all of the time. I mean, you'd have to make some trade-off decisions. Is it worth spending the money on a Safari browser versus, you know, a, a Google browser versus, you know, something else. So what else was uncuttable? I would say uncuttable is just investment in customer marketing. Again, the power of, you know, it's not what you say, it's what they say. The validation that you get from customers is just immeasurable. So I would never, ever want to cut those budgets at all. And then the third is, is really, um, it's content creation. So we did most of our own content creation. We never really outsourced it. If we did, we wound up taking it over anyway. My belief is it always has to start from within. You might have somebody who'd be a really good editor. That's different. But in terms of turning something over, we did a couple of case studies with external you know, consultants and writers and such. But for the most part, we wrote everything and packaged everything. We had our own, own house team that did all that. That, you know, that's just not cuttable. That's the content you, know, you need to go and amplify. That's three. <laughs> Julie Legal, 
CMO of Slack. Well, this one may sound counterintuitive for a podcast that's all about demand gen, but I am happy to be at a company that invests seriously in brands and advertising at the brand level. You know, it's something that a lot of B2B companies don't invest in. And there's a lot of ways to use, you know, traditional demand gen, direct response, all of that stuff to fill your funnel. But I do think, especially for a company like Slack, which is building a new category, really breaking out of just the bubble of our super fans and going out to the world, building that awareness and affinity at the highest level is very important. So my brand budget is very sacred. It's also the kind of thing that brand is pretty binary. Like you invest in it or you don't. Like cutting it, you know, 30%, 50%, like there's diminishing returns. There's sort of a threshold you have to invest in. We're very serious about doing that in a very targeted way. It all aligns up to our sales targets. And, you know, we're focusing on cities and areas where we really want to have the most expansion, but that brand budget is definitely sacred. I think another thing I would put out there, and, and this is less a budget and more of a resource thing, is content. Because I think in order to fuel all the great demand, and it does come down to the content that you have, the stories you can tell, the assets you can give to customers to help see their understanding, build their love and need for your product, and make them successful when they've started using it. So they'll want to deepen their usage and, and evangelize for you more. So I'd say that content budget or that content function is really critical. And then finally, you know, looking across the whole demand gen budget, I mean, I would say the demand gen budget in general, but I think what's great is the areas where we're really able to target. So I would say things like SEM are so obvious and obviously we invest in it, but you know, what I'm really interested in the ways to reach the new people. So what's the content syndication that we haven't used yet? What are, you know, the ABM tools that we haven't used yet? So I would say maybe it's the innovation pocket of my demand gen budget is the one that I would invest the most heavily in. Always got to have that SEM. We got to keep up with, with the Joneses and all that stuff, but it's the the innovative things that we can do on um, demand gen that I think would be the, the third. Dave King, CMO of Asana. First is, I would say, our free product and email channel. Super important. We can quantify how much revenue our self-service motion drives. What's harder to quantify, but that is very evident, is the word of mouth impact. So a free user who may never pay us, but drives, you know, shares about Asana and drives. So we see that in all of our kind of brand tracking and customer surveys, the influence of that. So the free product and email, really important channel. I really believe word of mouth marketing is the future and is really untapped. We're doing a lot of experiments on how to, um, how to drive it. I don't claim to have the answer, but what we are doing is, one is we, we instrument and track NPS maniacally. If we deliver the best in-product experience, we know that that makes it, you know, that makes the product remarkable. People will want to remark about it. Secondly is we're very focused on, we like to say great marketing is about education and delivering an experience. So how do we help people be better at their jobs? And we do this by giving away Asana Academy curriculum, free educational courses and content. We do it by connecting them with the community that I talked about. But how do you make it an experience that people want to talk about. So everything from in our product, we have, if you check off a task, you may get a magical celebration that flies across the screen. If you show up to one of our events, there's always a, you know, some unexpected moments of delight and surprise. And I think those are things that people just go, ah, that extra touch that sticks with you. You know, and then I'm excited about word of mouth marketing, not referrals, not cheesy stuff where you, you know, pay people to share 
how do you actually create an experience that people find so useful and so remarkable that they want to share about it? That's the key thing is I see a lot of community programs go wrong when the community is clearly there for the company's benefit. Sure, we'll have a community, but it's only so that we can source customer stories. It's only so we can get customer references. It's only so they can do this for us. You can sniff those out. And I think if the community is there to say, hey, we're here to serve you and connect you and help you grow in your career. And if you never pay us a dollar, we don't care. Those are the communities that thrive. On the paid side, search and review sites are important, a core part of the budget. With that, I would say our brand investments. With every company that I have been fortunate enough to lead the marketing team, coming into the company, I've talked with the founders, the board, and I've said, hey, 80% of the budget, I will show you to the best of my ability the return on that investment. We will measure it to the best of our instrumentation and we'll make wise investment decisions. The other 20%, I'm asking you to trust me to make great long-term brand investments. And we'll share proxy metrics on how those are doing and there'll be accountability, but I can't show you the ROI in a certain period for those investments, but I'm asking you to trust that it will be in the best interest of the company. And everyone has said, yes, absolutely. And so that, that brand investment, whether it's in the form of PR and analyst relations, brand advertising, community programs, I think it's super important. And I feel lucky I've been at companies with CFOs and boards that have said, yeah, that's, that's an important investment. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.